I just want to preface this. There are verses in the Bible, like my favorite verse, um, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit that makes you feel really good and warm and fuzzy. And then there's verses like these that make us go, wow, this is hard. So I give props to all pastors who preach from really hard verses. So thank you, Matt Sweetman. This is Romans 13, 1 through 13. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists that God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval." For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. And if he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of con conscience. For because of this, you will also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed. Oh, I'm done? Honor to whom, oh, I, I'm sorry. I read too much. I thought it was 13 verses. Phew, okay. My apologies. Did I send you the wrong verses? That's my mistake. I should maybe just let you go. Thank you, though, for reading. Let's give her another hand. Give my wonderful wife a hand for reading that. Preach on all of it, yeah. No, I only prepared a sermon on the first six verses, so that's all I had the capacity to figure out today for today. So uh, I want to extend a warm welcome as well to all of our guests. It's so good to see uh, your faces today. It's good to, a pleasure and honor to meet you. Um, and again, everyone online, thanks for joining us today. I hope you're blessed. If something does bless you in the worship or, or in, in the sermon, um, go ahead and hit the like button. That helps to spread it to more people. And go ahead and comment. Um, if you're chatting with John, who's our online host, let him know what your favorite ice cream is, just for fun. There's, there's no reason other than it's just it's fun. Um, so we are... Uh, oh, also, let me just say, it's good to see everyone in person. And let's especially thank everyone serving here this morning. Let's give a hand for Merrick on worship, everyone in the back, everyone on welcome team. People cleaning, people doing all kinds of stuff today. So thank you so much for everyone who is serving. We are in week three of this series, God of Justice. Started this a couple of weeks ago uh, with the ethics of God. Uh, last week we looked at the ethics of biology, or you could, we could have called that on the ethics of life. Uh, those are on uh, YouTube, they're on iTunes podcast. Uh, if you missed them, I'd really encourage you to catch up. This sermon series, this four-week series, is one complete series. I can't cover everything in every week, so they really all go together. Uh, today we'll be doing uh, the ethics of force, and then next week we'll, we'll finish off with the ethics of race. Uh, why are we doing this series? Well, justice is an important thing, really important thing. God has a heart. In Isaiah, it says that God is a God of justice. God has a heart for justice. But there's a ton of confusion and disagreement about what justice is, not just amongst Christians, but in our culture in general. I'm expecting questions as we go through this series. I've already had questions for the first two weeks. 
Um, so I would ask you, please, send in your, your questions. There may be discussions in our small groups. There may be different people talking as we go through this, because we are covering some really hard uh, topics that go against some of the grain, some of the things in our culture, and we're trying to discern God's truth on this and, and align ourselves to God's uh, revelation and God's truth. And so I'm expecting questions. So, so three ground rules to help guide us as we talk about this and converse about this as a church is, firstly, it is okay to disagree. All right? We need to agree on the big stuff, on agreeing on Jesus and the Bible, like all that big stuff's really important, central. But as it relates to some of these more kind of cultural things that we're, it's not always clear to us all the time, um, we, we, we're, it's okay to be in, the, in a church where you say, you know, I don't quite see it how that person sees it. Or I don't quite see it the way Matt put it that way. And that's okay. I want to be mature enough that we're okay to be in a church community where we can have a little bit of variety on some of our conclusions. That means me, leads me to the second ground rule is that we're all learning. I'm learning. You're learning. We all see different parts of it. And as we learn together, we can get closer to discerning uh, the true nature of things and, and what God teaches us and his word. And that leads me to the third ground rule, which is that we need to share grace with each other. How we talk about this topic is one of the most important things. We don't do it like the world. The world wants to cancel each other and destroy each other and be divided and, and, and to hate each other. Christians, we do it completely differently. We treat each other the way that Jesus treats us, which means we don't need to get upset with each other. We don't need to accuse each other. We can share grace just like Jesus has shared grace with us. So as we've gone through this series so far, we've learned that the Bible pairs together justice and righteousness over and over. And we looked at many passages in the Bible, almost exclusively when the term word justice is used in the Bible, it's paired with the word righteousness. And that's because you can't have true justice if it's not based on the right moral, ethical, righteous foundation. And as Christians, we get that from God's word. That's how we build our ethical understanding of life and justice. We get it from the Bible. But we learn that the world doesn't get it from that place. The world gets it from different places through the moral majority or through rational thought, all these different places. And because of that, the world's morals are subjective. They can move around. And because we have objective morals and the world has subjective morals, it means that our definition, our understanding, our conclusions about justice will be different. Sometimes they're aligned because we'll have the same foundation because we live in somewhat of a post-Christian context. But oftentimes they'll be divergent. And we should not be surprised that we have a different view and a different conclusion about what justice is and what it means. The definition, the biblical definition of justice is to give fair retribution to the wrongdoer and to give fair restitution or restoration to those who have been wronged. God does this perfectly. God's justice is perfect. We learned that state justice is necessary but imperfect, fraught with complications and difficulties. We're striving for it to be equal and fair, but it's a, it's a rocky road. And then also we've learned that as individuals, we're called to show compassion on the poor and the needy. And because the poor and the needy can be more um, taken advantage of and oppressed, that in their oppression, in, their, in that injustice, that we're called to correct that, to be a voice for those who have limited power themselves. Today, we're going to expand on last week where we talked about the value of human life. We talked about difficult topics last week. We talked about suicide and euthanasia and abortion. Let's uh, catch up with that if you missed that. But we're expanding on those ideas, and we're, we're looking at the, the, the use of force today, the value of life as it relates to the use of force. And we're going to be looking at law enforcement. We're going to be looking at um, 
We're going to be looking at civil government and individual responsibilities as it relates to force. We're going to be looking at war. We're going to be looking at self-defense. If we have time, we're hopefully going to cover all these different topics. Let me frame our sermon. Let me tell you a true story. Alvin York. Alvin York was born in 1887 and, uh, in uh, northern Tennessee. And uh, later on, later in life when he was older, uh, he received uh, his World War I draft card. He um, noted on the card, he wrote on the card, don't want to fight. Don't want to fight. What got him to that point? It was based on his, actually based on his Christian convictions at the time of pacifism. Well, he actually had uh, ended school early. His formal schooling had ended in third grade. He had to go and work uh, just to make it through. And as he got older, he had, uh, was a binge drinker on the weekends and would frequent moonshine bars and establishments like that. And uh, he went to church a bit because there was a girl there he liked, as many a man has done. Or, or women too. We, both, we all do it. We've all done it, maybe. Some of us, maybe. Over time, his faith got more serious, and actually, uh, he gave up drinking and decided to uh, become an assistant pastor, pursue the ministry. And as the draft came for World War I, uh, for moral reasons, he decided, he said, I, I think it is immoral to take any human life. And so I'm going to object to this, and I'm going to ask for an exemption from the draft. Well, his, his objection was... Uh, his. Uh, requesting an exemption was denied. So in 1917, he reluctantly joined the U.S. Army and was drafted into the 82nd um, uh, Infantry Division and shipped off to, to France. And he had lots of conversations with fellow soldiers and those uh, who were an authority over him about the nature of killing in war. What does God teach on this? What's the Bible's answer to this? How, do, how does he, is he supposed to process this and think about this? And so he had this ethical dilemma that he faced. And then one day in combat, caught in combat, his division, in the uh, northeastern part of a small, outside of a small village uh, in northeastern France. And that day, he saw many of his division, many friends of his, a lot, either awfully injured or just killed. And he faced a moral dilemma because of his previous convictions. What, how should he respond to this situation? And in that moment, he actually kind of crossed a, a moral boundary that, that, that had existed before for him. And he, and he realized something. He realized, if I don't act, there's going to be more bloodshed. Our whole division will be lost. And he, re, he saw the implication of the, the evil ideology of the, of the, the central powers, and especially the, the German forces he was fighting, the German government at the time. And he realized, that he, had, he realized he had to take action. And so he stormed up a hill. He charged up a hill towards machine gun fire. Not the most sensible thing to do in the world, but that's what he did. He was, his plan was to take over a machine gun nest. Miraculously, he was not hit, completely unscathed by this dramatic, heroic act. Only to, as he reaches this machine gun nest to be confronted by 19 German soldiers by himself. Imagine if you imagine you survived that first charge and then now you're facing this. How would you feel? How would you respond? How would you act? How would you think about that? I'm going to pause the story there. We'll get back to it at the end because it's going to frame and help us understand our passage uh, today.
So we read in uh, verse, let me reread verses 1 and 2 here, because we've got to look at these words. Verses 1 and 2 in Romans 13, it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Dun, dun, dun. What's the Apostle Paul teaching us here? This is written by the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, as some would call him. What's he teaching us here? That God is in favor of governing powers having considerable amounts of force. Now, because God is good, God's a good God. He only wants righteousness to happen. He wants governing powers to use that force justly and righteously. That's what God wants. That's God's ideal, God's plan, God's intention. But nonetheless, even, even in the, the worst intentions and the, and the most evil actions of people forming governments and using governing power, even in all the mess of that and the grossness of that that can happen, God is at another level above it, orchestrating and coordinating human affairs to bring about rulership in different territories and different lands on the earth. They're instituted by God. So that means for us, the United States, as every country, every country, every governing authority, for us included, our country has been given governing power by God. Given authority to rule by God. And we're told, that's why we're warned, we're actually warned that we should actually fear this force. We should be afraid of it. It's been given to judge us if we do wrong, if we commit crimes, we do something against the law. We're told to fear it. And we need to respond and be like Jesus in his day, who actually showed honor to the governing authorities, even of his day, even in brutal Rome. So when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, a Roman official, what does Jesus say to him? Jesus actually, so it was a phony trial, fake accusations against Jesus. Jesus is going to be crucified soon. He's before Pilate. What does Jesus say? Jesus actually tells him, you don't have any, I'm paraphrasing here, he doesn't, he says, you don't really have any authority other than that God's given you the authority. So Jesus himself recognizes that, and then Jesus submits himself to that authority because Jesus himself recognizes it came from the Father. It's a, it's a, it's a shocking thing to think about that God gave Rome governing power to unjustly crucify Jesus. And that Jesus recognized that was his mission and calling was to be crucified for our sin. Because God had a bigger plan. See, we can't see the plan. We see governing powers doing unjust things and we're like, we hate it, we don't like it. And of course we shouldn't like it. But sometimes we can't see that God, ha God has a bigger purpose in these things that we can't possibly imagine at times. And Jesus submitted himself and honored the authority that had been given by God, even though it's an awful thing. Now, how do we respond? How do we think about governing powers being used because this relates to an issue of justice, and this is very sensitive stuff for our time, isn't it? Gosh, just reading these verses and thinking about all the stuff in our culture right now, like, gosh, this is sensitive stuff for our times. How do we respond when we perhaps perceive or see that the government is being unjust or immoral towards us or towards others? How should we think about that? Well, firstly, we need to discern, this is the key, is the governing action against us or someone else, is it actually immoral? We need to discern that. Is it unjust? Now, we know that governments can be easily corrupted and can be some of the worst sources of evil on the world. We know, in the world. We know that. And so it's not 
a surprise that governments misuse their power and abuse, abuse their power. It's no surprise, but we do need to discern because we live in a time and an age where there's a lot of deception, a lot of misinformation going on. So that's the first step is discerning, is it immoral, is it unjust? Am I being persecuted here? What's actually happening? And the Bible gives us three or four responses to it. Firstly, you see the example of Jesus' family, even under persecution, fleeing to Egypt when Jesus was first born. That you actually can remove yourself from a situation that appears to be unjust, if you're able to. That's one response. The other response is you see civil disobedience can be... Now, there can be real... <laughs> we're to fear the governing powers. They're allowed to judge us for going against their edicts. So I'm not saying it's without consequence, but civil disobedience, if something immoral or unjust is coming our way, is justifiable in the Scripture. So one example of this in the Old Testament would be King Saul, who was an unjust and immoral king, dictator essentially, told his generals to, to kill innocent people, and they refused to do it. They practiced civil disobedience. They actually survived that. Thank God for that. Uh, but they did that. The other one, as a last resort, and we'll talk about this more later on, might be to fight. It's a complicated issue. You, see that you do see that in, in Scripture as well. All of these things happen in Scripture. The fourth one might be that under religious persecution, some people, some Christians might have the conviction where they feel like it's not right to fight or resist this. This is part of the persecution I'm supposed to, kind of like Jesus' mission on the cross. Some people might have that conviction, and we can, Christians will differ on that one. There's room for, to differ on that one. That is another option as well. Now, even in Jesus' day, the law enforcement of Jesus' day had a certain reputation about them. And, you know, you, you even see this so locally for us, even in, in Chicago. Um, I met a, a guy recently in the last several years who, who told me that the Chicago uh, police have one of the worst history, one of the worst records of uh, forced confessions, historically speaking. It's not this way anymore. So thank God it's changed, all right? We've, we've seen there's been a lot of uh, police reform, and it's changed. It's not what it was. Um, so we've got to celebrate that. But there is a lasting legacy of distrust because having, I mean, that's not a good record to have, right? A good history to have is we have the worst cases of making people confess to crimes they didn't commit, right? That's a real injustice right there. And so those things have lasting, can have a lasting legacy, a lasting effect that can make you distrust law enforcement. But also we see, you know, even specifically in the United States, as in most countries, the, the law enforcement used in, even in racist ways. You, I mean, there's no denying the historicity of that and the track record of that. So it makes it really important that we actually understand that we grapple with and wrestle with these verses because these verses, because we can ask, why would God give governing powers? Why is he so much in favor of them using, their, using physical force and violence and power to judge and to correct wrongdoing? Why would God do it when it can be so easily abused? And it has been abused. Why would God do it? Well, the answer is actually kind of simple, that there, are, there is greater evil in the world if you don't have a centralized, civilized, organized authority in a culture. If you don't have that, if you don't have some kind of centralized governing power, the, the only alternative is anarchy. And that's worse. Turns out that's worse. So in Noah's day, you go all the way back into Genesis, you talks about anarchy. That, that generation was so corrupt, so violent, so dis, such despicable things happening that God judged. You know, it's not just a children's story with animals getting on the ark. 
God judged that whole generation. You also see it in the book of Judges, book of Judges, where, there, where there's corruption in, 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 and there's, there's a you know, not proper governing power. You see anarchy happening. It's, it's a strange thing to say, but a broken government, a government that doesn't function properly, is more preferable than no government. That's, one of the, that's what we learn from Scripture. It's more preferable. So I'm sorry to all the libertarians amongst us today. This was not the Sunday for you to come to church. But libertarians, you shouldn't be angered by this because you should be very, very happy that I'm allowed and free to share these views and opinions with you today. So God has given state power to these governing authorities so that they can, as Peter, the Apostle Peter, also confirms Paul's teaching here. He says so that they can uh, punish uh, the evildoer and to promote those who do good or to uh, essentially promote uh, the common good uh, to all people. And as Christians, we have to grapple with this. We have to understand this, and we have to give ourselves to this because we're told to actually that we're resisting God if we don't. That's what these verses from Romans say. We're resisting God if we don't. So verses 3 and 4 says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who, has, who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. You didn't think you'd get any avenger references today. How's Matt going to work in an avenger reference today? The Bible just set me up for this one today. We've got Avenger references. Now keep in mind, the Apostle Paul is writing the, these, these verses here saying that God uses the force of the government to bring about his own judgment of wrath against criminality and wrongdoing and evil in a, in a culture. The Apostle Paul is saying this, and he was somebody who was wrongfully abused by two governments, by the Roman government and by Jewish authorities, governing authorities as well. Beaten, almost killed at different times, imprisoned wrongfully, totally misused. And he, even with all of those experiences, is still writing this. And he says they've got a sword. And I've got to tell you, it's not a metaphorical sword. All right? Sometimes we want to do that with the Bible. Well, it's just metaphorical. Well, it's just poetic. No, it says you're supposed to be afraid of it. All right? You're not afraid of a mer- metaphorical. It's not just a deterrent. It's not just to be like, oh, they might use it. It's like, no, they actually have the authority, the license, you know, James Bond, license to kill kind of thing, kind of situation. This, is, this has a long tradition, actually, uh, for uh, the Jews of the day that Paul was writing this to, for the Israelites of the day that Paul was writing this to. This isn't a brand new idea for them. This goes back in a tradition uh, throughout all of the Bible when you, when you take a whole big view of, of, of the history of, of uh, theology in the Bible, all the way back to, as I mentioned, uh, the days of Noah. And so you have uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, tells us, so after God destroyed that generation for their sin and their evil, how the anarchy that was there, God institutes this very important, different way of doing justice. This is now how God is planning to do justice on earth. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. I'm reading all the popular favorite verses today. All the ones you want to stick on your refrigerator. Those are the ones I'm focusing on today. Sarcasm. Sorry, I'm too sarcastic sometimes. People don't know when I'm being sarcastic. I have to, I have, I have to learn to tell people when I'm being sarcastic because they can't always tell. So God is saying in this verse 
that if you shed the blood of men, you unjustly take somebody's life away from them. We looked at that last week, right? The ethics of biology, the ethics of life. It's unjust to take a life away. He's saying if that happens, then God's saying, by man should your life be taken away from you. So that's a fair and equal retribution that you take somebody's life wrongfully. Well, then God's saying, I'm going to use other people to take your life. Not not out of revenge, and, and, and the Apostle Paul and Apostle Peter are very clear on this. Not out of personal revenge, you've got to leave it up to the courts. You've got to leave it up to a civil system to do it. But you should lose your life if you wrongly take somebody else's life. That's what the Bible appears to be saying here. And it says, it could, and we know, the, the, uh, the, these governing powers do not bear the sword in vain. This is not, the sword isn't a symbol. It's not a metaphor. It's to be used to prohibit, to thwart, to, to either be a deterrent, which would be emotionally traumatic. So you'd be traumatized, you'd be harmed emotionally by it, by someone threatening to use a, a weapon of, of death against you. So there's that, but also it justifiably could be used to, ha- to injure you, potentially to take your life away, if that would be an equal retribution for the injustice that you have committed. It is not in vain. Now, that doesn't mean, because God is a God of justice, any force that God says the governing powers should use to bring about justice upon wrongdoers, any force that should be used needs to be fair, because that's the idea of justice, is right, is that the, it, the rest, rest, retribution is, is equal to the crime that was committed, a punishment that matches the crime. Restitution is you're, you're giving somebody, you're compensating somebody for something they've lost. It's a, it's a fair and equal compensation. It's not too little, it's not too much. The, 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 restoration, the restitution is not too little, it's not too much. You're trying to find that, that equal balance. In the same way that the governing powers have been given force to use, it also, the force needs to match the nature of the crime that has been committed or the threat that is being posed. So the government itself needs to be subject to God's moral standards. It's not beyond the law or above the law, it has to itself enforce it in an equal and just, fair way. You know, all of this, the only exception to that actually would be in war. That would, that would be an exception. would be that you, in, a, in a war situation, you might have to use overwhelming force to have a decisive victory. But for the government subjugating its own citizens and having the right to use force against its own citizens that are committing crimes, not just willy-nilly, but committing crimes, for, the, just, for, for the, the government to be justified in doing that, they have to do it in a just way. They have to do it in a way that is fair to the, the threat or the crime that is being committed. Now, all of this talk about all this stuff, it just makes, as I was preparing this, I was just thinking about just the brutal nature, the brutal nature of law enforcement and crime, just the brutal and ugly nature of it. It's not a pretty thing. It's a gruesome, awful, terrible, difficult thing. And so following citizens subjecting themselves to the governing powers is an issue, therefore, of justice. We're told this in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. 1 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. It says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. Look at that. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. For the lawless and disobedient. So, those who enact justice, those who understand morality and do what is right in the world, the law is not given for them because they already know it. 
The law is given for those who are lawless, who are disobedient, who resist the authorities. And, and the warning to them is, you will be punished by the authorities if you resist their, their force and their power as they try to enforce moral law. That, this is one of the reasons why Christians, long history here, complete history for Christians throughout the centuries being very strong proponents of following the rule of law. In a society, Christians saying you, you, you can't, it's, it's, it's an injustice when you downgrade law, when you start applying laws unequally. You start ignoring certain laws. You start justifying certain actions. The Christians have always been against that because it leads to such suffering and such evil action. You say, we, we, we've got to have the rule of law. So that means if we see somebody breaking the law, someone committing a crime, and let's imagine this person is doing something life-threatening, they're endangering themselves, they're endangering other people, they're doing something that's, that's some kind of behavior or some kind of activity that's really dangerous to other people. They're, they're doing a crime and they're doing this. And then we observe law enforcement trying to apprehend and trying to restrain them and detain them. It's an ugly, brutal thing. Potentially, that person gets injured, depending on how it gets escalated or the level of threat. Perhaps even they lose their life. What the Bible is telling us is, if it was a crime and the, the level of threat is high enough that they're endangering the lives of others, the consequence on that person is God's wrath upon them through the civil government. That's what these verses are saying. I'm not saying that. I would never make that point. Of course, I would make the point because it's in here. What I mean is, I don't just make up points. God's truth, see, this is, what, this is why this is such a difficult topic to talk about in our culture right now because we've got so many other forces at work. Some of it's good, some of it's right, some of it's helpful, but we always align ourselves back to God's revealed word. What does God teach us in his word? So if we see something like I just described, we see something like that, someone committing a crime and there's some kind of life-threatening thing happening and we see law enforcement come in, if we see injury or we see restraint or we see even death, we have to ask ourselves to know if it's justice, we have to ask ourselves, what is the crime being committed? And we can't just look at a selectively edited video. You have to, what is the crime being committed? And you have to ask yourself, what was the level of threat? It's, and I think most citizens, in, most average citizens in our country don't understand the law, because actually we live in a very lawless country. I think it's getting more and more lawless. Don't understand the nature of the law and don't understand the nature of the threat. And if we understood that more, we would actually have more discernment about criminality in our culture. This understanding of justice really transforms certain key verses in the Bible. So, there are, so even in, in Amos chapter 5, Amos chapter 5 verse 24, very famously used passage. So Amos the prophet is having to prophesy to Israel. And this understanding of justice transforms how we, how we view these verses. So Amos chapter 5 verse 24, he prophesies, he says, let, but let justice roll down like waters. You've probably heard these verses, it's so famous. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Now, when we read th this verse, we get it a little muddled in our because we're too influenced by our culture, so we get a little muddled. We think in this situation that justice is talking about mercy or compassion. It's not. We should have justice, and there are other verses we can use for justice and mercy and compassion. For excuse me, mercy and compassion. It's 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 not there. 
we tend to think something along these lines. If the poor, because the poor exist, it's automatically an injustice, or there's disparities between different individuals or groups, so therefore it's an injustice. It could be an injustice. If something criminal created that, then that's an issue of justice and we fight that because we're about fighting injustice. But God creates disparities on purpose between people in this life and the next life, and so people's lives are going to look different. People, some people are going to have more than others. That's not an injustice. We do compassion and, and have mercy for people. It's something separate. But here, for this verse to say, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream means to properly enforce the law. That's what the verse means. It means to properly enforce the law. It means that we need to have a more moral governing system and we need to have a more moral citizenry as well. Because the Israelites of Amos's day, God's people, the people who are supposed to have the moral law, right? They're supposed to have the Ten Commandments, supposed to be the people who shine the light of God's goodness to the rest of the world, were violating the moral law and they were either perpetuating lawlessness in their own land, or they were unequally applying the law and, and targeting different people or ignoring certain laws. And it was injustice. So, so to let justice roll down like water is to give proper resti uh, restitution to the wrongdoer, to the criminal, to punish them, potentially with a sword, with the sword of Caesar, as the Apostle Paul tells us. To let justice roll down means that there would be proper restoration for those uh, and, and recompense um, for those who have been victimized, from those who have been harmed, that they would have something restored to them that would match the nature of what they lost. That would be letting justice roll down. To let justice roll down means to avenge wrongdoing, but through the civil courts, not mob rule, not individual judgments, but through a civil process. To let justice roll down means that we we're persistent at badgering judges to do the right thing, to consider the right thing. To let justice roll down means that we hold people accountable for their actions without making excuses for them. To let justice roll down means we equally apply the law. To let justice roll down means that we stop lawlessness. It doesn't, it's not really saying it's about serving the poor and the needy. We should do that. We should feed the hungry and clothe people and house people. We should do all that, but that's not what this verse is talking about. That's not the, the biblical idea of justice. To let justice roll down in our own lives individually means that we subjugate ourselves to the governing powers, that we accept the laws of the land, that we try and live our lives. Not forgetting the, the, the reasons I gave earlier on that there might be reason to go against that in rare circumstances, but that we subject ourselves to it, that actually justice is about the government properly enforcing the laws. You can't have peace and prosperity without that, in fact. In this Romans passage, we're being told that, there is, that, that, that governing force is synonymous with God's judgment. Governing force is synonymous with God's judgment, which means, as citizens, means we need to obey the law and we need to encourage everyone else around us to submit themselves to the governing powers, to actually obey the law. It's a, t it's a sensitive thing in our culture to say, to say these words a bit. But Paul doesn't get any easier on us 
This next thing he says in verse 6 that we read, I'll reread verse 6. It might be triggering for some of us. He says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. Look at that, they're ministers of God. They're avenging God, God's moral standards. God uses law enforcement to bring about judgment on criminals. And it says they're attending to this very thing. What's he saying here? He's saying we pay our taxes to fund law enforcement. That's what he's saying. There can be some debate about exactly how that works, but we have to understand this, that if we resist this idea, which is an extreme view to resist this idea, we understand in our culture that's an extreme view, but if someone had told me even a year ago or two years ago that it would become popular to defund law enforcement, I would have said, that's not, that's not going to be a thing. People like their safety. But now, that's where we're at as a culture. That's now become a popular sentiment. Anyone that wants to completely defund the police is resisting the will of God because it perpetuates lawlessness. Listen, even a bad government is better than no government because with no government, you have anarchy, which is the days of Noah, the days of the judges. Since then, God said, we're not going to do that anymore. Now we're going to actually set up God institutes governing powers. They're not perfect by any means. They do injustice, and we seek for that to be corrected as well. But we understand what God is doing and how God is working through this. Now it makes us ask the question, natural question, what about police brutality? How do we square this away with police brutality? I know myself, everyone I know, our church, we stand with all those in our culture, and including those in law enforcement as well, who oppose the misuse of power, of police power, who, who oppose the brutality of others unjustly. We all agree we're against it. We hate it. We think it's wrong. We think it's another act of injustice. And we stand against any, also any system, any policy, any rule that would unequally apply the law through discrimination. We stand against all of that. We reject all of that. But we've got a better hold two ideas in our minds here from the Bible that God is in favor of funding, using our taxes that we pay to the government to fund law enforcement that will be used to protect us from wrongdoers or protect other people from us if we do wrong. So it's kind of a bit of a different connection between death and taxes than you've ever thought of before. We've got to hold that idea. This is God's will. I shouldn't resist that. There can be debate about how it's implemented, how it's done. You understand that. But the other side of this is we've got to have this other thought in our minds. That because God is a God of justice, he wants fair retribution, not just against citizens that break the law, but against law enforcement that break the law. And we've got to hope and pray and work towards a society where that, happen, that, that is justly happening at the best, you know, it's never going to be perfect. The only perfect kingdom is going to, you know, there's only one perfect kingdom, and that's God's future kingdom. We've got to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we've got to work towards a more just society where we say we understand it needs to be funded, but we're equally applying the law to law enforcement and also to the citizens of a nation.
And Christians, I think, if you have a heart after Jesus, I think you would say, in your heart, you'd say amen. That's what we want. That's what we want to see, that level of justice in our land. Now, all the talk about law enforcement in our culture, I think, you know, has gotten us away, has kind of silenced other conversations that we might have around ethical issues around the use of force. So, for example, capital punishment, the death penalty. I'm not going to say too much about this because I've already kind of set it up from the passage in Genesis we looked at that it's unjust to take somebody's life away from them, you know, unjustly take it away from them is, is an act of immorality, and the fair retribution for that would be to have your life taken away from you. Now, I respect anyone who disagrees with that. Okay? We can, you can have a totally different view to that. Don't mind at all. People have different views on that oftentimes because it's been abused. I mean, we know stories of people who have had capital punishment, death penalty upon them, and then it's been proved later on they were innocent. Right? It's been misapplied. So it's an awful thing when it's misused. But biblically speaking, you know, what is a sword for if it's not for fair and equal retribution against a crime and a punishment that matches the crime. As it relates to war, war is an awful thing. No one should want war. We should do everything we can to resist war. Interestingly, the Bible, you know, last week we looked at the idea of you shall not murder. Those verses in, in, in Exodus, you shall not murder. You shall not take somebody's life away from them unjustly. When the Bible talks about the wars, that have been, because the Bible is full of wars and battles, when the Bible talks about those battles and those, those, those uh, moments of combat, it never uses the word murder to describe those moments. It always uses other words to describe it, which is a huge indication that God actually views those two things differently. God himself actually used war to bring about his own purposes. He sent pagan nations to conquer his own people in the Old Testament to bring them into exile because they had become so unjust themselves. We see... Uh, the, the Israelites having to def defend themselves against the Philistines. You see those kinds of situations, examples in Scripture. In World War II, the Allied forces having to join up to defeat the Nazis. We see some justification for war. There's always been a long Christian tradition about what's called a just war, where you have certain criteria where you say, you know, war, you want to avoid it at every cost, but in these situations, it might be justifiable or unavoidable to have to go to war. Historians will, will tell us I'm not an expert on this, so I can't speak to this, but I've heard a lot of people say that even with those criteria that Christians will put on war, a lot of historians will look back at history and say, a lot of the wars still weren't justified. People used those things as excuses to bring about war. I'm sure that's not true in every case, but it should be no surprise if that was true, because people like to have power, like to dominate each other, and like to fight. It's kind of the story of human history. You know, most of the well, let me say this. I like, I'm, I'm fond of, forgive me for quoting pagan gods, but I, I, to get another Avengers reference in today, Odin of Asgard. Odin of Asgard famously said, a wise king never seeks out war, but he must always be ready for it. That's a great quote. I like that. Unfortunately, not a Bible verse. We can't add it. We're not going to add it, but it, it's some, there's something good about it, right? Most of the Heroes of the Bible and the leaders of the Bible were military leaders. We can't forget that. And their actions of using force is actually praised positively. So in Hebrews 11, verses 32 and 33, it tells us, it says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, 
Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel, the prophets, who through faith, look at this, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. It's painting a positive picture. It's praising them. It's saying, without force, you cannot have justice. Force and justice have to go together. Otherwise, you cannot properly bring about punishment on the wrongdoer and then actually cause there to be restitution or restoration for those who have been wronged. To let justice flow down and roll down means to overthrow lawlessness. You cannot have peace and prosperity. We've got some wrong thinking in our culture where we think things, we think these, these wrong ideas that if we just do economic stimulation, that that will bring peace and prosperity. It never works that way. To build a life, you can't build a life if you're always in fear of your life. You first have to do what God has told the government to do and given the governing powers to do, which is to use the threat of the, of the sword to bring about stability and peace in a society. That the, that the citizens of a, of a society would be in fear of the government being against them if they ever do something wrong. So always make sure you're doing something right. So if you leave church today not feeling so great, feeling like, man, I would just like a sermon about God loving me or about being special. I'll give you that. Don't worry. There'll be future weeks. I'll give you a sermon where you feel great and you feel special and you know God loves you. I'll tell you in a minute God loves you. But it's good for us to have a reminder, you know what? If I do something wrong, I should be afraid. I should be afraid because God's judgment will be used against me through law enforcement. And hopefully, that would match the level of threat that I pose in that moment, in that situation. You might say, didn't Jesus say, turn the other cheek? Didn't Jesus say, turn the other cheek? He did. He said that that is, was a cultural practice where people would slap each other across the cheek with the back of their hand. They would slap each other like this as an insult. Okay? And it was intentionally mild and it, would, it, it, it was known to not cause injury, right? It's, it's a flat part of the body. It, does, you know, it wouldn't feel good right, to get slapped. I've been slapped once, I can remember. Many years ago when I was a teenager, got slapped. <laughs> Randomly, I don't know. A girl came up to me and slapped me. It was really weird. But to be slapped across the face um, is, was a known mild thing not to cause injury. To take that verse and to say, therefore, we should be complete pacifists, that like, oh, someone cuts off my right arm, but as a Christian, I'm supposed to say, you know, take the other one too. That's ridic- it's a ridiculous distortion of that verse. You know, murder is immoral. Taking a life unjustly is immoral. And so wouldn't that make us complicit if we see a loved one being harmed and we don't intervene? We don't try and stop it? What would that tell that loved one? Because love protects. Love wants to protect. So if you don't protect your loved ones in their moments of greatest danger, I think that would be more corrupting than, seeing, than the violence itself that's happening. How could you live with that? How could your loved one live with a sense of, do they actually love me? Do they want to protect me? Jesus, we're told when he was about to be arrested in the, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew uh, chapter 11, excuse me, Matthew 27, getting the wrong passage here, Matthew 27, Excuse me, 26. I can't get my passage right today. Matthew 26, verse 52. When they come to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out his sword and he cuts off 
the ear of a centurion, the ear of a police officer, essentially, law enforcement. And it says, Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? How do we understand this passage in light of what I've been talking about? Notice Jesus does not say to Peter, how dare you have a sword? Get rid of your sword. Never have a sword. Actually, Jesus allowed his disciples to carry swords because of robbers of the day. People needed to defend themselves. And even in Luke 22, tells them to buy two swords. When Jesus says that you'll perish by the sword, theologians will say that Jesus is talking about someone who lives a life of violence. Someone whose automatic reaction is violence. Hey, if you live that way, you're going to die that way. Jesus is not saying you can't defend yourself in the rare moment when you're attacked. The difference in this moment, the difference for Jesus in this moment, is that his mission was to die. Consider Jesus' words. Jesus rejected the force of self-defense in this moment because his mission was to die for our sins, so he knew he had to be captured. He knew he had to be mistreated. He knew that would have to happen to him. And what, he said, what does he say to Peter? He doesn't say we shouldn't fight. He says, you know what? If we really needed it, I've got a whole bunch of guys back in heaven who could be here in a flash, and they would dominate these Roman soldiers. Jesus isn't calling for less violence. He's actually saying we could deal with this in a second if we needed to. But that's not the plan right now. The plan right now is I need to be captured. I need to be mistreated. We're not supposed to use force in this moment to defend against this. What happened to Alvin York? He charged the hill, miraculously survived the machine gun fire to find himself in front of 19 German soldiers. Well, it turns out that he was a crack marksman. Single-handedly, he shot and killed every single one of those soldiers. It's an unbelievable story. Then a second group, after he killed all them, a second group of of German soldiers uh, start attacking him, running at him with bayonets. He takes all them out as well. Then the third flank that was supposed to then come after him was so demoralized by seeing what happened that they, that they retreated. That day, he marched back single-handedly 132 prisoners of war. And he was given the Medal of Honor by the United States and decorated by other allied forces. He risked his life to save his division. To, 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 to not let there be any more evil. I don't want evil to carry on, so I'm gonna, I want to save my division. But also he risked his life because he saw, he saw that this is such an evil thing. What, what, what choice do I have in this moment? I wouldn't want this, but this is what I have to do in this moment. We should never want violence and war. We should do everything to avoid it. But consider this, because there will be, always be people of evil intent, who want power, there will always be people of evil intent who want power. The just must have courage and wisdom to rise up. And this is why we honor Jesus as the greatest hero of all time. Because what did he come to do? He came to fight the greatest battle and fight the greatest war, which is to attack the very root of evil itself, all evil forces in the spiritual realm, but also the evil of the human heart, to come and rid us of of the intentions of the heart, that he might cure us for eternity, set us free from the trap of sin 
and the devastating effects of sin in our lives. That's what Jesus came to do. The only person born to die, which is why he refused self-defense in that moment. He was crushed. He refused force to be used to help him and instead accepted force. Now, to be used against him, to crush him, that he might die for our sins. We might unjustly have government force used against us or citizens, fellow citizens might harm us and do things for us. In all of that, we might try and defend ourselves. We might try and defend others. We might be pacifists. Who knows how we respond in those situations? But here's what we can't do is we can't stop trusting and following Jesus. And you know how you trust and follow Jesus? You trust and follow Jesus by subjugating yourself, for all of us to subjugate ourselves to the governing powers. We follow Jesus by seeking justice through the court system. We follow Jesus by paying our taxes to fund law enforcement. We follow Jesus by fighting against all forms of injustice. We follow Jesus by defending and protecting life. We follow Jesus by spreading the common good for all people. We follow Jesus by equally applying the law to all people. We follow Jesus by repenting of our own lawlessness our own injustice and our own sin. There's so many ways to follow Jesus and we're called to propagate the common good for all people through how we live and through following the authorities that God has put in place over us. Let's have the band come up. We want to respond to Jesus because we need to trust him because He is going to avenge all wrongdoing in this life, through the state, or in the next life. And you know what? We don't want to get to that next life without realizing, I didn't deal with my junk in this life. I didn't deal with my sin in this life. So today I want to invite you today. If you follow Jesus already, if there's anything in your heart that's not right, make it right with God. Make it right with God. If you've never accepted Jesus before, there's no one like Jesus who can defend you and protect you provide for you and bless you. Turn to Jesus today. If you want to get more involved at Trinity, if you want prayer today for anything, you've got questions, you want to reach out, you take that step that Natalie talked about. You can text the word enjoy to 94,000. Even if you didn't enjoy it this morning, you just still text the word enjoy to 94,000.